the modern church in way of its worship. And uh, in the Psalms to come that we're going to be looking at what it really means to worship biblically. Um, And it kind of begs the question, well, where do we start? I think if we answer that question faithfully, we'll start where the church and the redeemed of God have started throughout history. And that is the Psalms themselves. It's really only a modern happening in uh, church history that we have kind of supplanted the Psalms uh, with only modern, and when I say modern, I mean things that have been written in the last several hundred years, um, uh, writings to sing. Uh, It was pretty typical. In fact, one of the things, I've probably mentioned this to you, that I find fascinating about a lot of different movements throughout church history, the Dutch Reformed movement being one of them, is uh, that people really had most of the Psalter committed to memory. And if you were to go to a funeral, um, it wasn't uncommon for the pastor to just say, okay, we're going to, we're going to sing together Psalm 136. And nobody needed their, their Bible open to do that. I think that's, that's fascinating. At the heart of worship for the church... Uh, has been the psalm. So I'd say that we're in in a good place, 136 psalms in. Um, What we saw last week is that uh, Psalm 135 began and ended with the phrase, praise the Lord, and that these last 15 psalms really lean in that direction of what it is to rightly praise God, to give uh, him the, the glory that is due his name. So if you would stand tonight as we turn to Psalm 136 in all 26 verses, and these are fantastic uh, passages of Scripture. Psalmist here writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of Almighty God. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who alone does great wonders, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who by understanding made the heavens, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who spread out the earth above the waters For His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who made the great lights, for His steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for His steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over the night, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for His his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outreached arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. 
To him who struck down great kings for his steadfast love endures forever, and killed mighty kings for his steadfast love endures forever. Saon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever, and Og of king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever, and gave their land as a heritage for his steadfast love endures forever, a heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence tonight so thankful that you have given us the gift of repetition here and to instill into our minds and Father, by the work of your Spirit into our hearts, the reality that your steadfast love endures eternally, forever. Father, might we worship you in spirit and in truth and might we be molded into the likeness of Christ and might our hearts rest in you in fresh new ways leaving here tonight and being comforted by these words. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. In the Jewish tradition, Psalm 136 has been called the great Hallel or the great psalm of praise because it rehearses God's goodness towards His people and then encourages them to praise Him and to give Him thanks because of His steadfast love. Uh, Give thanks to the Lord uh, keeps being repeated throughout this psalm and indicates really what this psalm is all about. That as we come before the living God, if if we're going to consider the question uh, in the coming weeks of what is it to really worship God? Is it to have the right beat and the right uh, tempo and and the right instrumentation? And and certainly there's arguments to be made for uh, excellence in all things when we come before the Lord. But primarily what this psalm tells us is that if we really remember what God has done for you and I, we will come in a posture of giving gratitude to the Lord because of His steadfast love. It should be really a continual part of our worship and our life together. It's interesting that Derek Kinder points out that these words, give thanks, don't really uh, express the full meaning of the undergirding Uh, Hebrew words here. Uh, The Hebrew really carries with it kind of a two-fold rendering, but it's translated only with the glosses or the words uh, to give thanks to the Lord. But part of what is going on here is that the Hebrew writer is saying, come before the the Lord and confess. Acknowledge Him. Realize who God actually is. And then kind of the the end result of the acknowledging God or the confessing God is that you will give thanks for who He actually is. There's not just a blind coming before the Lord and we give you thanks, O Lord, but that, that gratitude, that thanksgiving is empty. In the economy 
of the original writer here, what is being said is that we come seeking to understand who the Lord is, and as we understand who He is from the text, we will rightfully give thanks. When we come to church on Sunday mornings, we often have a a, a time of confession in the sense of confessing our sin, but we also have a time uh, often of confessing the Apostles' Creed. And you'll remember these words that begin, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. So we come making a confession of our faith and what we believe one to another, not merely just to repeat some antiquated words that were given to the church hundreds, thousands of years ago. We come exercising those creeds and those confessions for a purpose, and that is to be reminded of who the living God is and having been reminded to be stirred to having gratitude in our hearts. Friends, there's a lot of, and I don't want to, I don't ever want to give the idea that I'm juxtaposing our church in a prideful way against other churches in our culture. We can all be susceptible to coming in and going through the motions of praising God outwardly while not seriously internalizing who He is and what He has done. So those creeds, those confessions serve as a gift to help us in that direction. And in fact, most of uh, the creeds, I think, are, are, are nothing more than pastoral kindness to the church, uh, to a, a way of reminder that we would genuinely worship. And so the question is, why, why do we thank God? Is it merely because of His, His kind gifts to us? The, 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 the material things? Now, we can be grateful for all of the benefits of God, and God does give us this material world, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more tonight. But really, the reason we praise Him is because... He is good. We, we thank Him because of all that He has done for us. Yes, but because of who He is, ultimately, that is why we give thanks. The first three, uh, uh, the first three verses here of this psalm really point at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, which says, The Lord... Your God is God of gods and Lord of lords and the great God, mighty and awesome. And here in Psalm 136, what is being said is give thanks to the God that is good because He is the only true God. He is good and He is the only God that is. And then there is this appropriate refrain in acknowledging the goodness of God, acknowledging the character of God, acknowledging the reality that God is the only God. And we remember from last week in, in Psalm 135 that there is this juxtaposition of a warning of idolatry and that idols will ultimately, as we make idols in our worship, we become like them. And really there is a warning there that we must be very careful about how we worship because how we worship will eventually come out in our living. Because it is in worship that we so often 
have our minds molded into our understanding of who God is. It is rightly said that as the church sings, I think it was Luther that said this, as the church sings, so she believes. As we pour our hearts out to God for who He is in worship, it changes us. The question that we can ask tonight is, how good is God? If we're saying God is good, are we just merely saying, well, God is, is He's sufficient for Sunday morning. He's, he's good enough to show up on a Wednesday night. I've got that crowd tonight. Is that how good God is? And the answer, of course, is no. He is supremely good. He's wonderfully good. He is good beyond any human expression. You could say tonight, Jay, I just want you to explain how good God is. And my response to that would be, I can't. It's beyond my vocabulary. It it is beyond the, the lexical grasp of all of the English language or any language for that matter. But we certainly can take a shot, can't we? In fact, Spurgeon, I think, rightly says here, the goodness of God, uh, in defining that, he says he is good beyond all others. Indeed, he alone is good in the highest sense. He is the source of good, the good of all good, the sustainer of good, the perfecter of good, the rewarder of good. For this, he deserves the constant gratitude of his people. God is Good And so the first place uh, that God is praised for His goodness in this psalm, 136, is in the goodness of His creation in verses 4 through 9. Remember, as the, the psalmist here says, to Him who by understanding made the heavens, to Him who spread out the earth above the waters, to Him who made the great lights, To the sun to rule over the day, the moon and the stars to rule over the night. As as the psalmist is putting before the people of God the very first reason, beloved, why you should give thanks to the Lord is because He has created all that is. Because His creation is, in fact, good. So we remember that. We come back to the the creed that I just mentioned, the Apostles' Creed, and we are reminded that it's almost as if there's a formula in how the Apostles' Creed was formulated in beginning with the words, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. People often will say, I don't need creeds. I just want my Bible. Well, if they're good creeds, they will be helpful expressions of the Bible in a way that is distilled. And that's what we find here. And, and ultimately, friends, here's the reality for us. Because we are believing, because God, and we talked about this last week, that, that one person can look at the clouds and all they see is something scientific, but we in Christ look at everything around us in creation and we're able to praise God because we know the God who is behind all of, uh, of creation That means that because of our biblical approach, because of our eyes being enlightened by the Spirit of God, we can can appreciate the world in a way that fallen humanity can't. Fallen humanity tends to do one of two things when it comes to the idea of creation. On one hand, they will inevitably, in different ways, bow down and worship the creation. 
instead of the Creator. And that's wrong. We're, we're not called to worship here the creation. We're, we're called to give thanks to God, the Creator, because His steadfast love endures forever. The other way that fallen humanity is constantly uh, uh, going in the wrong direction as far as creation is they treat creation as though it is nothing more than an ends to our own means. And we can exploit creation and we can use it in ways that, it, that serve us, but we have really little care for stewarding the creation that God has given us. But friends, as, as, as believing Christians, we know there's a better way to interact with creation. We can look at it and we can be reminded of, of, of God's words in Genesis when He was creating and He saw that everything He had done was good. It couldn't have been done any better. Uh, creation could not have... You know, there are times we think, well, I wonder why God did this. I don't know to many of those questions, but I do know this. It would have been something less had God not done it the way that He had. God does all things good. And so we come knowing that reality from Genesis, and out of that comes the reality in our lives that we can be thankful for the creation that God has laid before us. I think that there is in the Christian church, the modern Christian church today, a latent Gnosticism that says all that is immaterial is why we gather on Sunday morning, but what is material is something less. And the psalmist says, don't buy into that kind of theology. Everything that God has created is created for His glory, our good, and we can be thankful. One of the areas where I, I tend to get frustrated with that pastorally is when uh, the... Uh, I'm getting off into the weeds here, but it's all right. It's Wednesday night. We have time. Um, when I go to funerals and the funerals are just evacuated of real understanding and meaning and liturgy that, that points us to the reality that yes, while the, the eternal essence of the individual we mourn is before the Lord and we rejoice in that, that, that this body was God's gift to this individual throughout their life and we're commending it back to the earth and, and, and we don't take that lightly. And, and anymore, inside Christian circles, I think sometimes that is underplayed. We, we, well, well, this doesn't matter. Well, of course it matters. Uh, the, the, of course, the material part of God's creation, whether it's in our body or in uh, creation in, in nature, uh, it matters and it should be something that we give Him thanks for. And if we just sit and think about that, He gives us ears so that we can hear one another and communicate. He gives us eyes so that we can see His Word. He gives us hands so that we're able to serve and love one another in righteous ways. And all of those things are His creative genius. We should give thanks for that. We should also delight in it. Now some people might think that I'm splitting hairs here to say that we should give thanks and delight and they're really the same thing, but they're not. Uh, to have gratitude is one thing, but to delight in something is to take it a step further and to actually enjoy, uh, to, to come to the creation that God has given us and to, 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 to have a sense of God, in this creation, I sense your goodness. You, you, have you ever had that experience? Uh, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you grew up kind of how I did, where going to grandma's house for Thanksgiving 
that that was an expression of God's goodness, both because my grandmother was there and also because of everything that was going to be laid out on the table. And when I put that in my mouth, I, I, I could really understand and internalize this is good, and not just that it tastes good, but that God gives me the ability to taste and He makes the food to be delightful. We, we can delight in God's creation. We can delight in our marriages. We can delight in our children. We can delight in... Friends, we can delight in the creative genius of God to come up with the idea of the local church. What a joy that is. And that's what the psalmist here is saying. But then he goes on in verses 10 through 24 to point to the specific salvific good that God had expressed toward the nation of Israel, the deliverance of the people from the bondage of Egypt in verses 10 through 15, uh, leading th them through the desert uh, and to the borders of the promised land in verse 17, to defeat the enemies of Israel in 18 through 20, and to setting the people in their land in 21 through 24. And maybe the question arises in that, okay, Jay, God is good in His creation, but those specific acts of redeeming Israel, how do I relate to that as a New Testament believer? And I would give you two suggestions. One is acknowledging the reality that we would not have Christ without all of the, the history of the nation of Israel. And uh, that is the, the mechanism by which Christ came into the world. So there's a, a, there's a grace in looking at these verses and considering, wow, He was preserving this nation to bring about our Redeemer throughout all of what was going on from verses 10 all the way through 24. But I think the other way that we can acknowledge uh, the, the type of what's going on here, that God is saving His people, and this in a very material way, saving the nation of Israel. But friends, we are saved spiritually and eternally, which again, I would have us consider the Apostles' Creed. Do you remember these words? I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. For there he will come, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Ultimately, here there is a picture of God's salvific work on our behalf. And we should rejoice in that. We should give Him thanks for His steadfast love in all of the redemptive works of Christ endures forever. The third and final section of, of this creed really show us the benefits of Christ. And so as we consider all that God has done, we consider the reality that God has created um, all that is, and that we are called to give thanks and to delight in that creation, and through that creation our Redeemer was born. Uh, and we can give thanks to God that He has redeemed us through the blood of Christ, not by works, but by His sovereign will alone. And we can, we can then respond rightly in worship. We then have the why of our worship. I think that there is a 
a misunderstanding about the, 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 really the substance of our worship in the church today. And it's the reason why we're walking away from really good theology. And the misunderstanding is this. Many people come into church on Sunday morning and they, they think that really what is at the heart of worship is something that has happened to them. Now, we should be thankful that we've been born again. That something has happened to us. But really, what undergirds that happening to us is something that happened 2,000 years ago, and that is the work of Christ on our behalf. And not only what happened 2,000 years ago in Christ, that's, that's the culmination. That's the crescendo of the redemptive narrative of God working out His plan of redemption. But we can look back throughout, friends, this idea, we can look back all throughout biblical history and go, there it is. God is at work redeeming His people, and I am part of that people. Isn't that a joy? Isn't that awesome? That from, from the very dawn of time and from the fall, God, and before the creation of the world, if we really want to understand our theology well, God was set about to redeem you and I. And we get really, I think, into the, uh, a bad way of thinking when we look at the Old Testament and we think, when we look at the Psalms and we think, well, these were just for the, uh, this was just for, for only the ethnic Jewish nation of Israel. Now, certainly, these words had meaning there. We need to understand them in, in that context. But, friends, the Old Testament, in a sense, belongs to us. Because God is working out the plan of redemption throughout all time. So we should have as the undergirding of our worship, the why of our worship should be this. Because our God is a redeeming God and His works are wonderful. Everything He has done is good. All of it. There are some deficiencies, I think, in light of that in, in modern worship. And I'm thankful that I, I, I wouldn't say that I hope that I never have an arrogant attitude. We never have an arrogant heart in this church where we feel like we've arrived. We do worship well. I hope we never have that attitude. I hope we always submit our worship to the, under the blood of Christ, asking the Lord to, to continue to, to mold us and to stretch us. But I, I am thankful for some of where we've grown. Some of where we've grown is really out of a, a, an understanding of what the church has believed to be elements of worship throughout its history that are in the modern mindset continually evaporating. And, and I want to give you a quick suggestion of why the elements that I'm about to mention are evaporating. And it's very simple. It's because we're no longer coming in on Sunday morning to worship God. We're coming in on Sunday morning to worship ourselves. We want to put ourselves before all the wonderful things that God has done. And in so doing, we blaspheme the name of God and we don't actually worship at all. And what are those things that then have escaped so much of the modern church? The first thing is that we, in a lot of places, don't, don't pray. You don't come and give thanks for all that God is. You remember, and, and many of you I'm sure have been discipled in this, the, the acrostic acts to come and give adoration and confession of sin, to give thanksgiving and supplication and, 
And far too often, those things are marginalized in the modern gathering of so-called saints because they're, they're just too cumbersome. They're too clunky. They don't make good stage transition. But friends, how can we really be worshiping if we don't come in the entirety of what we're doing in a posture of prayer and give God praise for who He is to give thanks, internalizing the reality of who He is in His holiness and His righteousness, His love and His mercy and His kindness to us. How can we really believe that we're worshiping? We're not if we're not praying. Secondly, we don't often read the Word. And I want to stop here and just say this. Sunday morning and reading long passages of Scripture is very intentional. And I'm not giving a defense for it because I don't have to defend it. God commands us to do it. The Puritans were known for reading lengthy, lengthy passages of Scripture. Because it wasn't only the sermon, that's part of the, the, the worship of the saints. But throughout history, there was this understanding that when the people of God come together, we don't want to hear a distillation of what has happened on the Fox News Network throughout the week. We want to hear the oracular words of God proclaimed among His people. Uh, people will say, you know, and, and I know some of you have seen this probably in memes in different places, but it, it's been mentioned so many times, and we need to be mindful of it. People will say, well, I just want to hear a word from God. Well, good. Open your Bible and read. No, no, I want to hear Him out loud. Okay, fine. Open your Bible and read it out loud. And that is, friends, do we not... I hope that we're convicted. If we come in here on Sunday morning and Braxton has chosen, you know, 58 verses for us, and we go, ugh. Because we are going, ugh, to the voice of God. To the words of God. And I don't mean to pick on you. I, I am a sinful creature as well. There are times that I have to push against my flesh and go, okay, we're going to make it through all of these. <laughs> we're going to get there. And, and there's always also these kinds of arguments. Well, we can't maintain all of that in our minds. You're right. And, and if we were to ask those who are in charge of pedagogy at Harvard University, they would tell us that our minds can only handle so much information. But the problem that Harvard has is they have left out of all of their equations the working of the Holy Spirit among His people. And if we read large passages of Scripture, and Dallas, you are helped in verses 1 through 10, but can't remember verses 25 through, through 30, then glory be to God, He has used the portion of the text in your life that He's intended. I hope that's helpful. We should read the Word of God in our gatherings. That should be so vital. It, to the extent that if we don't do it, somebody should stand up and go, hold on. Well, what's happening here? But you see, this is what happens in the modern mindset. Instead of looking to the Word of God and how He has prescribed that we should worship, and instead of looking to those who have gone before us in the faith and given their lives to hand the Word of God to us, we look to just one generation behind us, what we grew up in, what feels good in the flesh, and we go, that is what worship should be. Friends, I don't want to attack what is one generation behind me because I can guarantee you this. I know my sinfulness and I am no better. But I do believe this. If we are really going to honor those who have loved us in the Lord, we want to have a big view of worship under the Word of God, not merely trying to do what makes our flesh feel comfortable. We should read the Word of God. 
Third, the exposition of the Word of God is evacuated in so many places. Uh, People, men and women, get up and they... Well, I, was, I, I had a conversation recently with someone about what, what, what are you looking for in a, a pastor and the, the response of, well, we want somebody that's relatable. Uh, we, we really want somebody that's funny. Uh, we, we want somebody that really, you know, entertains you. Okay, I mean, Conan O'Brien sounds like maybe a good choice potentially for you. Or if Jay Leno's got some time, maybe he can stop by and pastor the church. Friends, at the end of the day, if I go to the hospital, you know, I don't really care how relatable my doctor is. I want to know that he knows what he's doing. And I want him to have an awareness of how my anatomy functions, and I want him to understand where he can make interventions to help me grow in the right direction to be healthy. And friends, I promise you this, there is no man who can ultimately um, help you to grow in the Lord and in Christ's likeness if he's doing it away from the Word of God. What we must demand in our pulpits is stop playing games and start heralding the Word. I think it was C.S. Lewis, maybe Winston Churchill. The jury's out because people give different attributions and probably in eternity we will find out that neither one of them actually said this. It was somebody else. A lion doesn't need to be defended. It just needs to be let out of the cage. And the reason why the church is suffocating today is because we are no longer letting the lion out of the cage. We are just regurgitating the modern thoughts of men back to them. We need the exposition, the clear teaching of the Word of God. Confession of sin is something. That's uncomfortable. Do we really? I mean, we're Catholic if we do that. No, we're not. Not if we do it biblically. We need to confess sin. Singing, hymns, and here don't just hear the the timeline argument of how new or old hymns should be. What, What I want to communicate in that we should... We should long to have hymns as part of our worship service is this. We should long to sing good theology. If, 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 if praising God really is the act of being grati- uh, grateful for who God is and we are confessing publicly this is who God is. Our God is not like the other gods. And, and we are praising Him because He's not like all of the fallen idols of this earth, then when we sing, we don't want to just sing sentimental crap stuff. Sorry, crap's probably not the appropriate word. Well, we don't want to just be sentimental because I promise you this, every other god, every other idol is nothing more than something to stir the sentiments of humanity. Our God deserves to be reverenced and given glory for who He actually is. And so when we come before Him, it it, it benefits us and it is right before His throne to ascribe and to confess right theology in what we sing. Theology only doesn't matter if we are atheists. I hope we get that. 
I think one of the most... So, so there, there, there's five things we need to be mindful of. We need to pray, we need to read the Word, we need to exposit the Word, we need to confess our sins, and we need to sing good, rich theology. And I'm thankful that we do that in increasing measure in this place. It doesn't matter how many people are in this room and it doesn't matter how loud they can sing if we are not actually acknowledging God for who He has revealed Himself in the pages of Scripture. One of the, one of the, one of the interesting features of Psalm 136 is the way that it, it kind of works its way around to where it started. It began with a call for us to thank God and it really ends in the same way. Verse 25 moves us back to the thoughts of God's goodness and His kindness to people in general. general. Where we started in thanking God for His just general work in creation, we then conclude in verse 25, He gives food to all flesh and for His steadfast love endures forever. And what is pictured here is the common grace of God. Friends, we've so marginalized what it means to talk about the grace of God that I think sometimes in the church we fail to acknowledge that God is benevolent to even those who don't believe. Those who are outside the church. Those who are not yet redeemed. Those who have not turned in repentant faith. And here the psalmist says, He gives food to all flesh. He gives the, the, the food that my dog Bo gets from, ben, or from Jace in the morning. I love Bo because Bo is a breakfast man. Bo, Bo wakes up at 5 o'clock in the morning and he chews me out to take him out to the bathroom. And then as soon as he walks back into the house, he goes upstairs to gnaw on one of my sons to go down and scoop some of his food into his dog dish. All of that to say this, the food that goes in my dog's dish is even a common grace in a sense to that dog. And Bo, there's an argument that he's a common grace to me. But anyway, God is good in so many ways. Um, but we see this, this argument, all, it's not just here in the Psalms. Jesus spoke about the, the, the benevolence of God as he reminded the Jewish people in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, that, that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In Acts chapter 14, Paul echoes the same sentiment as he talks uh, to the Gentiles and he said, God has shown His kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Or Romans chapter 1 we see the antithesis. We see the reality that what, what the psalmist is calling for us to do here is that we would worship God, that we would give Him thanks for all that is in creation and for all of His benevolence to us as His people. And then in Romans chapter 1, what we find in light of the call that even if people aren't redeemed, they still owe God their worship. They still should give God thanks. We find that man, apart from the particular graces of God will not do that as Paul writes and you'll remember these words although they knew God they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him now if somebody forgets to to tell Cam thank you throughout the week it's not the end of the world maybe causes some frustration but it's not that big of a deal but when humanity breathes in the air that God has made and drinks the water that He has benefited them with and eats the crops that He has provided and 
go sunbathing in the sun that He has afforded them, and they refuse to give Him thanks. It is cosmic treason. And this is why it matters so much the way that we worship. Because how dare we, one step closer, being the redeemed of God, those who He has saved by His grace alone, how dare we gather here in His name and not give Him the thanks that He is due. I I want you to feel the weight of what it means to worship. We have lost a sense of gravitas in worship. That this is a meaningful, important thing that we do together. We're not just going through the motions, talking to another sister in Christ earlier this week, and she acknowledged, she said, you know, after, after COVID hit, um, I think a lot of people just stopped coming to our church because church to them for years, decades, wasn't really something they were doing from the heart. It's just a routine they got in, and COVID knocked that routine out of the way, and lo and behold, after, after the bands were lifted, well, why would I go back anyway? For, for friends, we should be mindful of what we are doing when we come here on, on Sunday morning. We should be mindful of when we gather on Wednesday night. We should be mindful of this. The world should give God thanks tonight because of water and air and the gift of family and, um, gosh, the list could go on and on, all of those kind graces. But do you know why the people of God should come as often as they can and sing praises to His name and give thanks to Him? Well, the psalmist has told you 26 times. His steadfast love endures forever. It's the enduring love of God. If we really understand the Hebrew word here, it's the hesed love of God or that, 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 that kind of picture we have in Ruth, that binding love of God. The, the, the love of God that is a one-sided um, binding of Himself to us. It, it really points to a covenant love that He has determined before the foundation of the world to give us the beneficence, the benevolence of His love. Think about the antithesis as we read through all of what God has done here in creating, as we read about God striking down the firstborn of Egypt and bringing about Israel from the midst of of Egypt and the dividing of the Red Sea, as we hear of everything that God has done in those moments, let's be reminded of who the, who the, who the nation of Israel was in those moments. Were they faithful? Were they moral? Were they good? Were they thoughtful? They weren't. But do you know what continued generation after generation uninterrupted? The steadfast covenant love of the Lord our God. And so it is to our children and our children's children. And we don't understand how all of his, it, it, that works and his setting His love upon us, but what we do know is that He loves us. And that He's done that not because of who we are. I've had so many conversations in my time here as pastor. Why does, what difference does it make? 
What difference does it make, Jay, if God is the one alone who saves or if we have just a little part in it? Because every little part that the people of God play in the Word of God, they mess it up every time. And then it no longer becomes the steadfast love of the Lord. It, it becomes a cooperative work. But the psalmist here says, come and give thanks to Him. Ascribe who He is in His character because He has loved you so well. On the night, and I'll end with this anecdote, on the night of February 358 A.D., church father Athanasius he held an all-night service in Alexandria, Egypt. And he had been leading a fight for the eternal sonship of the deity of Jesus Christ. And friends, if you want to get involved in, in filtering, and you should, through theology, one thing you'll find is this all throughout church history. People will make arguments. Well, well we really don't need to, you know, people don't need to be divided. These truths don't really matter. And, and what you find really is, all throughout church history, there were men who stood up and said, no, these ideas of who God is do matter because they are the core of the worship and the adoration that God's people give. And what you will find most often is the people who stir the pot and start these fights aren't great theologians, they're politicians. They're people who have a, and we have to understand, we live in a time where where politics and our theology should not go together. But throughout all of human history, we should be thoughtful of the reality that those two things were often so enmeshed. And Athanasius here was fighting this battle for, for uh, that really the doctrine of, of Trinity in, in some sense. And, and there's this political faction that is coming against him. such that they moved the power of the Roman government against him. And that night, as he's contesting and contending for the faith once for all delivered the saints, the church was surrounded by the Roman government with drawn swords. People were frightened. And Athanasius, with calm resolve, announced, Beloved, we should sing Psalm 136. And that congregation responded, and they thundered through 26 times singing in the face of spears over one small doctrine. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And when the soldiers with their spears burst through the doors, they were staggered by the singing. Athanasius kept his place until the congregation had dispersed entirely. And then he too disappeared into the darkness. Many people died that night because of that theological controversy. But those that remained never forgot this one truth, beloved, and I hope we never do either. And that truth is that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father God, might we be a people willing to fight, not fight unnecessarily, not fight contentiously, not fight in a way that doesn't bring you glory, but be people who are willing to fight for the truth of who you are in your character. Might we not come here and be pretentious, pompous people who worship you for who we want you to be, but might we be people 
who are humbled before your throne and before your word, so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us that we can do nothing but pour out our praises. We don't argue with you. We just acknowledge you for the glory that is due your name. In Christ's name, amen.